The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. It's a pleasure to meet you, Sweden. Oh, please, no titles in the workplace. Oh, thank you. Andy. Norman. Good. Good. Not much theatre work of late. No. Oh, no. that's right. Good hands here. <laughs> How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. Yeah. You're confused. No, oh, it's perfectly simple. Uh, case in point, Lord of the Rings. Little Peter Jackson comes from New Zealand, says to me, Sir Ian, I want you to be Gandalf the wizard. And I say to him, you are aware that I am not really a wizard. And he said, yes, I am aware of that. What I want you to do is to use your acting skills to portray the wizard for the duration of the film. So I said, okay. And then I said to myself, hmm, how would I do that? And this is what I did. I imagined what it would be like to be a wizard. And then I pretended and acted in that way on the day. Yeah. And how did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. How did I know where to stand? People told me. If we were to draw a graph of my process, of my method, something like this. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, action. Wizard, you shall not pass! Cut! Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Okay, you see? Yeah. That was Sir Ian McKellen, spoofing himself on an episode of the show, Extras. His authority on screen has been seen as a Nazi and apt pupil and as a mutant Holocaust survivor in the X-Men movies. But it was his performance as the Wizard Gandalf that earned him his second Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. He and an incredible team of people led by New Zealand writer-director Peter Jackson have made their mark in cinematic history by adapting one of the largest works of English literature onto the big screen. On this episode of ARC, it's going to be all about Peter Jackson and company's incredible contributions to the world of fantasy film, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Also, I'm going to give my review and commentary on the latest movie in this series, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. This is ARC. God bless television. To the movies. To good movies. To every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair gel? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! That's not even a word! Game over, man. Game over. I'll be back. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with a happy heart that I can proudly announce that ArtsReviewAndCommentary.com is up and running. As with the other shows on the Realm Network, there is a link to Amazon.com. 
Click on the Amazon button above the ARC logo to take you to an online shopping experience that not only helps the network, but helps me out as well. Click on the Flickster button to go to my movie ratings page, where you can find my reviews and ratings on thousands of entries. And click on the iTunes and Stitcher buttons to subscribe to the podcast. Bookmark artsreviewandcommentary.com and make ARC your first stop for shopping, movie reviews, our latest sponsors, and access to listen to all of your favorite Realm shows. That's artsreviewandcommentary.com. Joey, you are going to love this guy. Gandalf is like the party wizard. Well, wh- why do you call him Gandalf? Gandalf the wizard. <laughs> Hello, didn't you read Lord of the Rings in high school? <laughs> No, I had sex in high school. In my episode about Tom Clancy, I had mentioned that I had never read The Lord of the Rings when I was growing up. It was probably because I was more into science fiction than fantasy. Spaceships and technology were more interesting to me than magic and witchcraft. It wasn't until college that a friend of mine suggested that I read The Hobbit, and honestly, I wasn't that impressed. But like I said before, it was really because fantasy just wasn't my bag. When I finally got around to reading The Fellowship of the Ring, I was bored out of my skull. The first half of the book is literally a hiking trip to a place where they make the decision to hike some more. An entire chapter of the book is dedicated to our characters trying to make their way up a snowy mountain only to have them turn around and hike back. Seriously, that's the chapter. So... When 2001 came along, and many of my friends were quite excited that The Lord of the Rings was going to be made into a trilogy, I was simply curious. I'd heard that New Line Cinema was taking a very big chance in shooting all three movies at once, and I was skeptical that it would pay off. The Lord of the Rings was a fantasy series that was only popular for a pretty small segment of people. Or so I thought. I'm companion. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? When the Fellowship of the Ring first came out in the theaters in the winter of 2001, I was in no hurry to watch it. As a result, the movie came and went out of the theaters before I had any desire to see it. But the critical reaction was impossible to ignore. All of my friends told me that I had to see it, But since it wasn't on home video yet, there was only one way that I could watch the movie. The internet. By decree, all persons found guilty of piracy, or aiding a person convicted of piracy, or associating with a person convicted of piracy, shall be sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. Imagine, if you will, downloading that entire three-hour movie on a slow, early 2002 broadband connection. There was no BitTorrent yet, and P2P file sharing was disgustingly unsafe, with pop-ups and viruses just begging to install themselves on my system. The movie took four days to download in two parts, but download it did. So, here I was, sitting at a small desk chair, watching The Fellowship of the Ring on a 13-inch monitor with tiny tabletop speakers, and I have to tell you, that movie was amazing. 
to the shadow. that gets me every time. Seriously, the best word to describe the emotions that come from watching a bearded old man in a gray robe fearlessly face off against a 14-foot-tall fire demon on a narrow bridge is visceral. And mind you, I was watching this on a computer. It is a testament to Peter Jackson and his writing team of wife Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens that they were able to take a book about hiking and turn it into a movie that would actually make me excited for the next installment. And since I watched it a few months after it came out in theaters, I didn't have that long to wait before The Two Towers was released. To stand against the might of Sauron and Saruman and the union of the two towers. It's easy to forget just how good the second installment was. Because the Fellowship was split at the end of the first movie, our attention had to be divided among three separate storylines. That division meant that the relationships forged between certain characters in the first movie wouldn't be seen again in the subsequent films. To compensate for that, we're introduced to new characters such as Treebeard the Ent and new locations such as Rohan. The movie also takes an incidental battle and turns it into the site for the climax of the movie, namely the Battle of Helm's Deep. But the most spectacular addition to this movie is the innovative visual effects character of Gollum. Go away! I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me? Willem, Willem, I saved us. It was me. We survived because of me. The motion of CGI characters have a tendency to appear too fluid or too smooth. But the rendering of Gollum by Weta Digital from the performance capture of actor Andy Serkis has forever changed the way virtual characters are used in live-action movies. Here was a photorealistic character that was seamlessly inserted next to other actors and audiences were able to watch a character and not a visual effect. Authority has not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Rule of Gondor is mine, and no others. In Fellowship of the Ring, we're introduced to the world of Middle-earth, and the movie deliberately made each environment a real lived-in place. In The Two Towers, we see the scope of the undertaking, with innovations in CGI characters and battle scenes. With environments, characters, and locations established, what could the third movie offer in terms of something new? The answer, scale. The movie features not one, but two extraordinary battles where participants number in the tens of thousands. The imagery and stakes are epic, and the movie manages to combine the action of entire armies and balance it out with focus on individual characters. 
It had been 10 years since I'd cheered in a theater, but there were a couple of moments in The Return of the King when that happened. Here's one of them. No man can kill me. Die now. I am no man. One of the criticisms of The Return of the King was the multiple endings that it featured, which basically was the last half hour of the movie. To those critics, I say this. We had just spent nine hours across the span of three years watching these characters on their journeys. The lengthy ending was really the only satisfying way to say goodbye to them. Additionally, this story wasn't simply about the characters, but about the entire world they lived in. Take Star Wars, for example. The ending of Return of the Jedi didn't focus on the greater universe that the Empire had corrupted, but concentrated on this small band of heroes and their role in the galaxy. Therefore, the original ending on Endor's moon is satisfying enough. But with The Lord of the Rings, all of Middle-earth hung in the balance, and it was important to show the consequences of their struggles. The Lord of the Rings movies should be an example of how to adapt relatively dry material and make an exciting movie. It shows how to take dozens upon dozens of characters and make them each unique and memorable through performance, costumes, makeup, and even visual effects. The score by Howard Shore reinforces the emotion that the story and writing are supposed to invoke. It shouldn't be any surprise that these movies received numerous accolades, with The Return of the King winning all 11 Academy Awards for which it was nominated, including Best Picture. For me, The Lord of the Rings trilogy is the best movie trilogy ever made, and I say that as a fan of Star Wars. Star Wars has adventure and excitement, and it's not that I crave not these things, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy has more. It has more friendship, more love, more loss, and more victory. Next to Sauron and Saruman, Vader and the Emperor seem simplistic. The Orcs and the Urukai are more frightening adversaries than the Imperial Stormtroopers. And let's be honest here, Gandalf would probably beat Obi-Wan in a fight of two old men with swords. Star Wars is fun, but The Lord of the Rings is moving, and The Return of the King features a moment that always makes me cry. But that's for another episode. When we come back, The Hobbit and my review and commentary for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. This is Buzz Burbank, very proud to be a partner in the Realm Network. I'm proud of our variety, our diversity, and our commitment to bring you a growing array of personalities from longtime favorites to the podcasters who shape the future. News, comedy, entertainment, gaming, sports, and more. You name it, we've got it covered, and we're just getting started. The vast majority of our shows are free, but we have some very special shows, and I'm proud of what you get with a Realm Network all-access pass. 
the Mark and Lowell for premium shows, my own specials, including the interviews, including my exclusive chat with Don Geronimo, two additional premium shows from the rest of our great lineup, Just a Minute with Joe Ardinger, Ringtones, and more, and we'll throw in a couple of window stickers. And expanded mobile technology is coming very soon. Join the fastest-growing network on the web, which is now also your best value. Get your 2014 all-access pass at realmnetwork.com and maybe get one for a friend. Just click on the orange all-access pass you'll find at realmnetwork.com, buzzburbank.com, or markandlowell.com. There have been malicious rumors started at this elementary school that my beautiful fiancé is a hobbit. That is not funny, and it is not true. All right? Yes, Kim is heavier than most of her pictures show her to be. Yes, she gets her hair lasered off her body. Yes, she has a friend named Gandalf who happens to be a wizard. I'm sorry, excuse me a minute. Bitch, how are you not the Hobbit again? The Hobbit, an unexpected journey, was, unfortunately, not as good as its predecessors. It suffered from a bloated cast and a worry that the movie would be mostly filler due to the relative brevity of the original book. It was a shock that a book such as The Hobbit would be made into three separate movies. It smacks of profiteering, and as a result, expectations were lowered. There was something novel to look forward to, though. The movie would be projected at a higher frame rate than normal. If you don't know what that's about, let me explain. And it has everything to do with the word movie. Ain't never seen me a flick of show. If you're listening to this podcast, then you probably already know that the word movie comes from the technical term of moving picture or motion picture. What we perceive as movement on a screen is actually a series of still pictures taken at a high speed and then projected through a device that shines light onto those pictures. To prevent the viewer from seeing a film strip sliding across a screen, shutters are quickly activated so that only the frame of the picture is shown at any given time. Earlier projectors had a noticeable flicker to them, which is why they were sometimes called flicker shows or flicks. About the time sound was added to movies, the rate at which the frames of the movie were displayed was 24 frames per second. And that's been the standard for watching films in a movie theater for nearly a century. Television, in much of the Americas, is projected at almost 30 frames per second. The Hobbit was projected at 48 frames per second. Consequently, the colors were more vibrant, motion was much more fluid, and the details were shockingly clear. Cool, right? Well, for some people, yes. But for people who had been watching movies in the theater at 24 frames per second all of their lives, the difference was jarring. The details made it seem like the audience was watching the fantasy become real, and not in a good way. It became obvious that the movie was shot on a set. Actors were wearing prosthetics or contact lenses, and because it looked more like television, the quality seemed inferior. It became too distracting for some viewers, and audience reception was decidedly mixed. Now, I wasn't one of those who really had a problem with the high frame rate. It was a bit of a distraction at first, but I figured if the story was good enough, then it wouldn't really matter what the frame rate of the movie would be. Unfortunately, 
the Hobbit suffered a problem that the book ignored, namely having 12 dwarves to pay attention to. The book concentrated pretty much on Bilbo, and the numerous dwarves were just a group. That the movie tried to give each of the 12 dwarves a bit of individuality and unique personality was admirable on Peter Jackson's part, but the sheer number of characters on screen at the same time made them seem superfluous. Also, it's been brought up that the race of dwarves who have lost their homeland parallel the Jews of the diaspora. I would caution against following that parallel too closely. That these dwarves love their gold and riches has unfortunate implications. If she is a hobbit, then how come she don't turn blue when goblins are near? Oh, you didn't think of that! Oh, I guess she's not a hobbit then! She must be a beautiful, sexy woman! The hobbit doesn't turn blue around goblins, just his sword does. Man, get the f*** out of here, you hobbit trivia bitch! Who the f*** asked you? Nobody is talking any more about my woman, alright? She is gorgeous! If she was here, you could all see for yourself how beautiful she is. But she can't be here because she has a movie coming out on Friday, directed by Peter Jackson, called The Hobbit. Hold up. Bitch, that movie you got coming out is called The Hobbit? Yeah, but it... It's what? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep, I got it. Yep. Yep, let me tell him. Love you, too. Kim is not even in that movie. That movie is just loosely based on her television show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which is a show about short, loud little people living in a fantasy world. Hold up. Bitch, if you're the Hobbit, you need to let me know right now because I'm making a fool of myself out here. So now we come to the desolation of Smaug. This is the movie that we were expecting, a roller coaster ride of fun and excitement. In fact, the best sequence of the movie is a barrel ride down a river that would make a great theme park attraction. The movie doesn't skimp on the excitement, and the movie improves on the original story by tying the narrative of The Hobbit with the greater world from The Lord of the Rings. One way it does this is by adding the elf characters of Legolas and Toriel. Legolas never appeared in The Hobbit, and Toriel is an original character written specifically for these movies. Another way the movie ties into The Lord of the Rings is how Gandalf separates himself from the group of dwarves, and his quest takes him to a threat that is greater than one dragon. The movie also further splits up the dwarves into two groups later on in the movie. By doing so, we get to know more of the individual dwarves so they aren't just a mass of indistinguishable short-bearded men. And then, there's Smaug. Voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, the Dragon Smaug is a visual effects masterpiece. While not as innovative as Gollum was back in The Two Towers, Smaug's image on the screen is massive and threatening. His entire body illuminates as he's about to breathe fire and melt gold. I just wish that the scenes with Smaug featured more light. Since Smaug resides inside a mountain, 
Everything is dark, and it's tough for the audience to appreciate the vast amount of detail that went into designing this dragon. Nevertheless, the movie shows us lots of the monster, and the simultaneous fear and bravery displayed by Bilbo and the dwarves is very believable. One of the only real problems of the movie is that the solution to Smaug's defeat is telegraphed early on, so there doesn't seem to be any anticipation of victory from the dwarves. It's exciting, but it's also predictable. Three and a half stars out of five for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. More fun than an unexpected journey, but not without its problems. That's it for this episode of ARC. Please shop Amazon at artsreviewandcommentary.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcreviews. Follow the show on Twitter at arcreviews. And you can email me at artsreviewandcommentary at gmail.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is ARC. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network. She might be stumpy, that don't mean she a hobbit She's not a hobbit cause she couldn't be She got no Bagginses in her family tree Yes, on occasion she hangs out with her dwarf friends But she never went on no quest with her dwarf friends Except for one time she went to kill that dragon She took its gold and she... Hang on a minute, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Bitch, remember when you went off to kill that dragon with them dwarves? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yep. Yep, I got it. Yep. Love you, too. It wasn't no dragon, so my girl ain't no hobbit. That was a Quiznos, and my bitch went to rob it. Because they got that ham that she rubs on her cellulite while she drinking her grog and singing those merry songs at night. My girl ain't no hobbit. Please, God, tell me I'm not engaged to no hobbit. 